0: So how many of you have bets that one of these times when I come up here, I'm going to fall? <clears throat> I hope you're wrong. But I, if, if there really were bets going on, probably would take a bet on the side that it could happen. I'm feeling good, but uh, I never know for sure when that could happen. Hey, it's good to see you today. Glad that you're here. I'm going to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3, and we're coming to the conclusion of our study in Genesis. We, uh, there's one that I didn't do, but Pastor Rich communicated with me that he wants to do a series in the month of April on uh, family relationships, and he laid out the uh, four different things that he wanted to have us cover, and invited me to cover two of them, Uh, to start off this uh, on marriage. So I was scheduled that weekend to preach on marriage. So I pulled it and uh, entered the next one in the series in, and we'll bring it back in April. I'll make some adjustments so that it fits a little bit better with what it is that he's trying to accomplish. Happy to do that uh, because I'm really excited about what God is doing in bringing Pastor Rich here and how he's going to lead and preach and so on. Genesis chapter 3, Paul wrote, Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Do you know how many people don't believe that? they do not believe that what they plant is what they are going to harvest as far as life is concerned. One of the primary reasons I think they do that is because they are betting against and hoping against hope that what God says, he will either forget or it won't really happen. But I've got to tell you something. It's true. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest What you plant. Don't ever forget what I said last weekend. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin will cost you more than you want to pay. So let's consider sin's consequences for Adam and Eve way back then in the Garden of Eden. And let's see how that maybe touches our lives, applies to us Here this morning. Will you follow along in your Bibles or on the screens as I read uh, verses 14 through 19? The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Cursed is the ground before because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the earth. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Would you join me in prayer before we dig into the text? God, these are not words we want to hear. Very frankly, what we would like to hear is that there's a primrose pathway that we can walk along smelling beautiful flowers, not seeing any clouds lowering or lowering on the edge of this landscape ready to overtake us and provide difficult times for us. But rather what we really want is we want good things. Lord, would you help us to recognize, though, that what you teach us about how sin has affected us is very important if we are going to uh, understand and receive, really, the blessings that God has for us. So guide me in this time of teaching and preaching, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. What I'd like you to notice firstly with me in verses 14 through 19 is that the sinner's who are involved in this passage of Scripture, and then consequently you and I, uh, we face consequences. So when we look at these consequences, there are three particular uh, individuals, if you were, that are identified for us in the text that we'll look at. We'll look at a consequence or consequences, and then we'll look at also an outcome. In verse number 14 and 15, we see firstly that the serpent had consequences. The Lord said to the serpent, you know, what you've done is wrong. You have come to the woman, you have enticed her, you have deceived her, you have tempted her, and she has fallen in that, and so therefore you're going to be cursed. That's the word that he used there, and we'll see that in just a moment. He says that you're going to be cursed above all of the livestock and all of the beasts of the field. He says you are going to slither along on your belly, and you're going to eat dust for all the days of your life. Now, I don't know whether that means that before this, uh, the, uh, the snake had some other posture. Whether it did or did not, what we discover is, God says that there are some consequences that are going to rest upon this serpent because he had been a tool against God and against the things that God had created. In fact, the word that he uses here, and by the way, it's used several times in the text, means, is the word cursed. And it means to detest utterly, to abhor. And I could say to you, it was a bitter curse. Let me illustrate this to you in a way that will show you just how cursed this beast really is. When you think of the extended animal kingdom, do you find anything as repulsive as the snake? I decided I'd do a little survey. Now the survey I did is not really scientific. It wasn't wide enough, using a broad enough spectrum and enough people. But I got some answers that I think many of you would uh, certainly agree with. Here's what I heard from people: the uh, the things, insects, beasts, whatever that they most greatly detested, the skunk. <laughs> None of us really wants to be around a skunk. We know the consequences if we are. The wild boar, you know, the pig that is wild. By the way, I used to work with pigs on the farm. I don't care whether they're domesticated or not. They're dangerous. And what I want to say to you is a lot of people are afraid of them. Uh, Here's another one. Uh, The uh, jungle slug. Maggots. Cockroaches. Cockroaches. These are just some of the things that were named. Now, you you have some other ones, no doubt. There are some of you who had put onto the list uh, spiders. And some of you who had put onto the list mice and rats. Well, none of these things that are named are things that I particularly like either. But I need to say to you that what you need to realize is when God pronounced the curse upon the serpent, He said that worse than all of these other beasts or insects or whatever you, organisms, that that the snake was going to bear the consequence of the curse in such a way that it would be greater than any other. But in the midst of this, there is an outcome. And it is connected with this consequence that is given to the serpent. It's found in verse 15. And it is described in theological and biblical circles as the prot-evangelism. The little part of a word, P-R-O-T, before evangelism, if you're writing it down. What it really means is this. It is the first gospel. Now that's interesting. Because when you've read it, you've probably thought, Oh, it may be significant, but I can't see what the significance is, so I'll just read it and pass on but we're not going to just read it and pass on this morning. I want us to really see what it is that God is saying. It is the first announcement of a coming Redeemer found in the Bible, one who is going to come to deal with the issue of human sin, one that is going to help people to face their sin and to overcome it. So let's look at what it says in verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Well, the first thing that I want you to see is this word enmity. We see it, and we know that it's not a nice word, but let me tell you that probably a better way for us to understand this word, since we don't particularly use the word enmity in our uh, day-to-day conversation, it means hatred or hostility. God says there's going to be hostile relationships between the devil and God. That throughout all of time, there is going to be a hatred that is going to be demonstrated. And just as this is going to be demonstrated by the devil, he says it's also going to be illustrated by the devil's offspring, What exactly are we talking about there? Well, I think that it would be safe to say that God is saying to us that Satan, that the demons are all in a hostile relationship with anything that God has created. Therefore, we can say that they are hostile toward people, not just Christians. They are hostile towards Christians, but they are hostile toward all people. And those who refuse to follow Jesus Christ choose to be associated with that hostility. That's a sad thing to, in, in terms of describing a person who is an unbeliever, that they are hostile. Secondly, I want you to notice that he uses twice in the text the word bruise. And the word bruise means to overwhelm or to severely damage. And if you look at this, it says that the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman. He is going to severely damage the offspring of the woman. What does that mean? Well, there are two things in this as well. Firstly, I will say to you, and not as importantly, but important for us to understand, the evil one, the devil, is going to severely damage people. And sin severely damages us. Sin severely damages you. But more specifically and more importantly what he's saying is, That the evil one is going to bruise, severely damage the offspring of the woman. And in this case, it is speaking about Jesus. Because Jesus was God's plan for providing salvation, Jesus was God's plan for the one who will save us. And what did he have to do for that to be possible? He had to go to the cross. He had to die in your place, in my place, to purchase salvation for us. In the moment that we see Jesus hanging on the cross, we realize that the world around really believed that he was severely damaged. They may not have understood all that was going on behind the scenes, but you remember they were crying out to him, "Uh, you, you said you could save others, how about saving yourself? If you are who you claim you are, why don't you come down from the cross? And in that instance, they felt that he was severely damaged. In fact, in a matter of a few hours, he physically died. During that moment, the evil one, the devil, slithers to that place close to the cross, sees Jesus there, And he screams in glee. Ha 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 ha. I've won. One thing was true in what God said way back there in the garden. I was going to bruise your heel and look what's happened. You've died. You're done. You're finished. But that's not the end of what it says in our text. Because it says that he, speaking of Jesus, would Bruise the head of the serpent. And the idea in that is that Jesus Christ would deliver a fatal, a crushing blow to the serpent. And in the moment that Jesus died on the cross, that crushing blow came. Never again, never again, never again has the evil one had the power that he had up to that time to create havoc in the world. You say, hold on here a second. He's pretty powerful. I didn't say he was finished as and he could do nothing. But I'm saying he was finished in terms of what he was setting out to do, which was ultimately to overcome God and take the place of God. Why he stays active is because He wants to try to continue to deal to God a severe blow. The severe blow being that he convinces and deceives like he did Eve, like he did Adam. People to choose not to obey God, to choose not to come God's way in salvation, to choose not to become those who are followers of Jesus Christ. But what I want you to note with me this morning is verse 15 not only deals as a consequence to the evil one, a loss of power, but it offers to you and to me an outcome of a means of salvation. In verse 16, we discover that the woman also faces some consequences, and these consequences are are, are connected with the challenges in childbirth. He says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now, we we love children. Husbands and wives desire many times to have children. In the course of time, they do bring children into the world. Any of you who have been around, and especially you women, uh, will say that the greatest pain you ever feel, physical pain you ever feel, is associated with childbirth. Now, we guys, we can't really identify with that as in, oh, we've had pain that's that bad. Women who've had a second kind of pain say that the second closest pain to childbirth is kidney stones. Now, I've had no kidney stones, so I don't know that's true either. All I'm saying to you is, God said that there was going to be pain in childbirth. Why would he say that? I think he wants us to realize that just as he told us to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, just as exciting as it is for us as married couples to have children come into our home, to be able to raise them from their infancy to adulthood to launch them, and yes, to survive their teenage years. He wants us to remember when each child is born, That the fruit of the outcome, that which comes to us as a blessing from God, is nonetheless a reminder at the beginning of the fact that sin is real. And that we suffer consequences for our sin. And some of those consequences are lasting. I'm sure there were times when Eve probably said to God, Why do I have to face this much pain? And remember, in her day, They didn't have some of the things they have today to try to overcome that pain so that it is a little less difficult. But there's a second thing that is said here that is a consequence that I think is fascinating and is incredibly misunderstood by both men and women. This is what he says in the last end, verse 16. Eve, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Dem's fighting words in our world. My friend Warren Worsby says the submission isn't really actually identified for us here in the text. It isn't identified as a mandate for a husband to have sovereign power over his wife. The New Testament makes it clear that husbands and wives who love each other and are filled with the Spirit Will be mutually submissive. And he bases it upon what is said in Ephesians 5 and verse 18 at the very beginning of that wonderful passage that talks about roles and relationships between husbands and wives, where he says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, what do we need to learn from this? As a counselor, I oftentimes have couples who come in for counseling who are really struggling. Here's sometimes what I hear. Well, pastor, you need to realize my wife isn't submissive to me. Okay, what does that mean? Well, I tell her what she's supposed to do and she won't do it. That isn't what it means. God did not leave us in a position to be able to order people around. He has given us as husbands some authority and responsibility. Here's what I usually hear from females when they come in. I shouldn't say usually. I, there's, I was going to use the last part of the illustration before I used the first part. Here's sometimes what I hear Well, Pastor, I'm just as smart as my husband. In fact, I'm smarter than he is. Do you know that that's often true? But the issue of how this all works together isn't an issue of smartness. It's an issue of authority, of understanding. What husbands will say to me is, the problem with my wife is she doesn't respect me. And she will say, and this is, happens very often, when he does something that I can respect him for, then I will respect him. Sounds pretty logical, doesn't it? But it's dead wrong. Oh, the preacher said that? When we get into this passage in Ephesians chapter 5, it clearly says to the husband that the husband is to love the wife. He is to love her unconditionally. That means with no conditions attached. And then in Colossians, in a similar passage, a parallel passage, he says to the wives that wives are to love their husbands unconditionally. No conditions attached. Then at the tail end of Ephesians chapter 5, we discover that the woman is to respect her husband. And that also is unconditional, with no conditions attached. And over in Colossians, it tells us that the husband is to respect his wife unconditionally. The point I'm wanting to make is this. Oftentimes we think that there needs to be this incredible competition for who is going to lead the home. And God says that one of the consequences of sin is that our female friends are going to be driven by a desire to take that position. Friend, you do not want that responsibility if God has not given it to you. But he has given it to your husband. And unfortunately, many, many husbands are so passive that they will not take the responsibility. So I hear that. Why won't my husband take responsibility for that? And I look at the husband and I say, okay, that's a a reasonable question and they don't know what to say. The consequence of sin is it drives a wedge, if we allow it to, into that relationship, and it is the devil's desire in using it to drive it apart. God is identifying for us that the issue of authority is going to be there in front of us. So let's look at the man's consequences, because he does not get off... Either in verses 17 through 19. His consequences are that the ground would be cursed. Uh, God says to Adam, Adam, you need to realize that when you you ate of the tree, uh, you, you brought this curse upon you, and the curse that I've brought upon you is that the ground is going to be cursed before you. There's that word again cursed. To be destitute utterly, to abhor. It's a bitter curse. And the outcome really begins to explain the depth of that curse in verse 17 and 18 for we see there he says in pain you are going to work the ground. Thorns and thistles will grow up and you will eat of the plants that come but you're going to have to sweat to get things to really grow. I grew up in a farming community. I think I shared that before. And one of the things that I have great ability to remember. I almost said great memories, but that connotes something that is not correct. Um, I would get up early in the morning, I would go out and I would be preparing a field. Or I would be planting a field. Or I would be cultivating a field. Or then we would be harvesting a field. And putting what we got into the barns, into the granary, into the building that would hold it. And then I would be dealing with whatever we would put in there to prepare it to go to whatever market it was to go to. I worked long, long, hard, hard hours. It was good work. It taught me a work ethic that I probably would never have learned otherwise. But as I approached the end of high school, getting ready to go to college, I said to myself, Don, if there's anything you have learned, you should have learned that you want to leave the farm when you go to college and never return. See, most of us look at this and we say, this is no this is no big curse. Why, we go to Schnucks or someplace like that and we go up and down the aisles and, uh, and we harvest what it is that we want to have in our home for meals. Somebody had to work to get that there. Women are going to look at this and say, now hold on here just a second. This isn't fair. We have this great pain in childbearing and all the man gets is he's got to sweat a little bit. Well, you can, you can ask God about that when we get to heaven. He'll, he'll be able to explain it more perfectly for us. But the way that he concludes this helps us to understand that the consequence that he wants us to really see is this. Look at the tail end, or look in verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. As a pastor, through the years, I have had to uh, perform many, many funerals. Several hundred. Actually, it's several hundreds. In one church where I pastored, I was there four years, and I had 104 funerals. So I've stood beside graves as we are committing that body to the ground, and we've done the committal service. Things have changed today quite a bit, but back in those times when I first started, the funeral director would always step to the casket, And with a little bit of dust, a little bit of dirt, he would pour it onto the top of the casket when I would get to that place where I would do the committal and say, dust to dust, earth to earth, ashes to ashes. And they would put it on there, sometimes in the form of a cross and sometimes just as a, a, a pile of dirt. One funeral. An older retired priest was actually doing it and he walked up to the casket, and in that case, he wanted to be the one to put the stuff on the casket. Just as he went to do that, the ground gave out underneath him, and down he went underneath the casket. The funeral director didn't quite know what to do, finally said, well, I guess I'd probably finish it up, and he finished it up. And uh, the priest ended up staying down there until they hauled him out. (laughs) I never had anything like that happen, but I could tell you stories. I think I'd probably better not. But the thing that I really want you to grasp this morning is this, there are consequences to sin. And death, physical death that he's talking about here is one of the consequences to sin. We need to do what God invites us to do in verse 15, and that is to come to him. We need to do it now. We ought not wait. Look in verse 21 and you'll see that a second thing that happens in terms of the consequences of sin, God provided for the sinner. Do you see what verse 21 says? And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Back in chapter 3 and verse 7, after Adam and Eve had disobeyed God and their conscience began to bother them, we are told that... Because they then knew that they were naked, they went and took some fig leaves, big fig leaves, and sewed them together and placed them upon themselves as loincloths to cover their nakedness. But it didn't work. It never can. Self-effort can never get us beyond the consequences of our sin, as hard as we might try. So what did God do? Here in our text in verse 21, God provided a covering for the naked sinners. He took two animals. He killed those animals. He took their, uh, took their uh, covering, uh, their skin, and he made garments to give to the people. Now some of us in here are horrified with this. We say, man, God is brutal. Why would he take two animals and do this? But I want you to turn this coin over. I want you to see what God is really doing, because when we look through the Old Testament and all the way up to the time of Jesus, there are several things that had to happen to provide a covering for sin. The first thing was this, a sacrifice had to be made. Now we can use a number of different stories, I'll not do so this morning, to tell us what we need to realize, But one of the things that God is showing through this that is true throughout all of the Old Testament all the way up to the time of Christ and including his death on the cross was this. For there to be a covering for sin there had to be the shedding of blood. In fact, we read in the Bible without the shedding of blood there is no remission. God is showing us In what he is doing, how his grace extends to us by providing a covering for sin when he took those animals and he killed them and he placed those garments upon naked Adam and naked Eve. And from that moment forward, they began to realize not only how God provides, but the horror that goes with God's provision For your sin and mine. Who of us cannot picture in our minds at least some of what Jesus had to go through physically? And by the way, that was a Sunday school picnic in in comparison to what he really had to suffer on the cross when he bore your sin and he bore my sin. It's a horror. It's devastating. But he did. And in doing so, He provided a way for you, for me, to come clean. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, we read, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the thing that typically happens We say Well I'm not as brutal as God is I think I can find a way To make things right with God So that I can get into heaven For eternity Sometimes I will ask people this question In fact more often uh, I will ask people I don't know When I'm getting to know them Two questions If you were to die today and you were to stand before God, why should he let you into his heaven? The answers I hear most often range across a spectrum from, well, I'm a good person. I do the best I can. To the second, I've never killed anybody or robbed a bank. To the third, I think I'm just as good as everyone else. To the fourth, I know that Jesus died for me and shed his blood on the cross. Now, those first three responses don't work. Some of you here, that's what you've been telling yourself. I'm doing the best I can. I've never done anything really that bad. I, I, I I have been as good as other people. But God says that it is not by works of righteousness that we have done, but is according to his mercy that he saved us. He tells us that in Titus 3 and verse 15. The second question that I will ask them really gives me a sense of what it is they are putting their confidence in. I will say, so now you are standing before God, and he says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What are you going to say? And here's most often what I get for an answer, even after they've said the other things. They don't know. Now, I don't go shame on you. I say, good. Now let me explain to you that Jesus died on the cross. He paid the price for your sin. He shed his blood so that you can come to Jesus Christ. And if the Spirit of God is dealing with you personally, where you are, saying that's what you need, then what you need to do is come in repentance before God and by faith which he gives you, you need to trust Jesus Christ for salvation. And if you're here this morning and that identifies you, then you need to come when I'm all finished here in just a few moments. See, there's something that we need to realize Sin separates, and we've told you that sin separates us as far as spiritual life is concerned. Sin separates us as far as uh, physical death is concerned from God because of our sin. But sin also separated from the tree of life. Eating of the fruit of the tree of life, according to verse 22, God says we can't let them eat of that fruit lest they live forever. And the thing that is interesting in verse 22 is there's a dash at the end there. In other words, the sentence isn't finished. And when he picks up the second part of it, he doesn't ever go on to explain it further, but it is intended for us to understand that clearly this. God could not allow them to eat of the tree of life. They could not be permitted to use their own religious experiences to try to prove to themselves that they could get in. The second thing in verses 23 and 24 was the separation from the garden. Three words quickly to tell you what happens. Verse 23, Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. Now, there's not a nice word. Look at it here in the verse. Therefore the Lord God sent him out. And the Hebrew word literally means he expelled him. Verse 24 tells us that Adam and Eve were driven from the garden. We read in verse 24, he drove out the man. So they're expelled. They're driven out. The way that I would describe that is if any of you have had a job that you were, uh, they let you go. Or you resigned from, and do you remember what happened? Somebody from the human resources department came to your office with you. They helped you pack, or not. And then they ushered you out to the door, making sure that you took nothing that did not belong to you, and making certain that you did not return. That's what's happening here. God takes them to the edge of the garden and says, you're out. The third thing in verse 24, Adam and Eve were forced to stay out of the Garden of Eden. And we are told that cherubim with flaming swords were there, turning every way to guard them so that they could not enter into the garden again. Now we're not told that they ever attempted. In fact, I doubt that they ever attempted to return. Because what would have happened to them is the cherubim would have killed them at the moment can you see how incredible the losses are they're more than this but in the texts that we have studied they've lost spiritual life they've lost physical life they've lost the ability to enjoy the things that God had provided for them to enjoy in the garden of Eden they lost their home And they had all these curses upon them that were going to be and continue to be upon those who reject Jesus Christ. And even those of us who know Jesus Christ live with the realization of those consequences. But friend, this morning, you can come to Jesus. If you don't know him, you can receive him as your Savior. If you do know him, but you've not been living for God, You can return to Him. And you need to do that today. If God's Spirit is dealing with you, you need to do that right now. Will you join me in prayer, please, as we come to the conclusion of this service? Now, God our Father, this morning, you are speaking to the hearts of someone in this room. They either need to trust Jesus as their Savior Or they need to get back in fellowship with you. There are some in their marriages who are living a broken fellowship because they have been not only living the consequences, but willingly living the consequences of sin. Help them to come back to you, to renew and restore their marriages. may we not leave here until we have dealt with things that we ought to deal with. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, in just a few moments I'll let you go, but I, I want to encourage you. You heard uh, Pastor Rich say that he is anxious for you to, uh, to be inviting people to come. And I want to join him in saying that, since I'm right here, in saying that there's value in that. I think there are about 300 chairs laid out here in this auditorium. If you look, you'll see that hmm, over half of them are empty. When I preach and I say to people, you know, you need to come and talk to me. This chair and this chair and this chair and every other empty chair isn't going to come and talk to me. You say, well, that's stupid, Don." Well, sometimes stupid illustrations will help us to understand something. If this chair has somebody sitting in it, and this chair has somebody sitting in it, and this chair has someone sitting in it, especially if they do not know Jesus as their Savior, the Spirit of God is able to work in their hearts and minds and their lives. And when Pastor Rich says, come and talk to me, there may be some who will come, and they'll trust Jesus as their Savior. And if you have invited them, If you personally have invited them, and they go to talk to Pastor Rich, and they trust Jesus as their Savior, don't you think you'd get a little bit excited? Oh, my goodness. Don't you think you'd get a little bit excited? Do you know something? I think it would make Baptists dance. Well, whether you would do that or not really is immaterial. There'd be a tremendous excitement that would be associated with it. You, you say, well, Don, I don't invite anybody because they don't come to this church. Where'd that logic come from? Of course you don't need to invite them if they come. <laughs> well, I don't think they'll come. Well, one thing I know for absolutely certain, if you don't invite them, they won't come. You say, but when I invite people, I invite four or five and they don't come. Well, invite four or five more. Keep inviting until somebody says they're going to come. Now listen, what you don't do is say to them, now, when you come, you come into the auditorium, I know you call it the sanctuary, so I better change that. Uh, When you come and you come into the sanctuary, look around and you find where I'm sitting. If there's a seat beside me, you can come and sit with me. Otherwise, you need to sit in one of the empty seats. There are plenty to choose from, by the way. Don't do that. What I would encourage you to do is to say to them, are you willing to come? Yes, you're willing to come? Okay. Okay. Let's us meet up. Now, you need to to know, this is what I said at the end of the first service, and uh, it made all of the old-timers laugh like crazy. I said, what you do is uh, you invite them to go out to breakfast with you. Go to some hole in the wall. (laughs) I found out it's the most notorious place in town. (laughs) And I think that's funny. By the way, If you were to go to the hole in the wall and invite someone to come, that wouldn't be so bad. I did say to Don Spangler, you you may have to lay on more security here, but (laughs) anyway. Invite them to go to McDonald's or to Dunkin' Donuts with you or to some other place that has breakfast. After you've had breakfast, then uh, you have them come in their car, and the two of you arrive in whichever parking lot you arrive in, the two of you come in together. You sit beside one another. You act in a friendly way toward the people who don't normally come. And you know what? You'll be glad you did. <laughs> if you do, you can look at someone who didn't. Well, Janice, I brought somebody, but you didn't bring anybody. Ha ha ha. I, I did what I did what Pastor Rich told me to do. I did what Dr. Don told me to do, but you didn't. Ha 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 ha. No, don't do that. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if you had every seat filled? Hey, how about, how about, wouldn't it be great if the junior high section up here was so full it had the next row filled? Huh? Do you think that would be a good idea? I think it would. How would it be if you had this whole row, that whole row, that whole row filled with people from high school? Wouldn't that be great? I think it would. So, I wonder what would happen. You get the point, right? Good deal. I don't mean to chastise you. That was, that wasn't what that was about. I, I'm glad to have heard you laugh at a lot of that because I am serious about it. But I think that if we can if we can realize this is a glorious opportunity. Do you know the creasters all come on Easter? Do you know what you know what a creaster is? Those who come on Christmas and Easter, and that's all they come. They all come, but you can get some others to come, and it will be exciting. What a wonderful way! to welcome Pastor Rich and his family as they come here to be here as a whole family for the first first time on Easter. He's looking forward to it. He's excited about it. I'm excited for you about it. So God bless you. If you need to talk to me, come and talk with me. You go and have a great, great week. Lord willing, I'll see you next weekend.